Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Kids' Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with the research and policy bent. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Haley. We are a researcher and a policy analyst who are translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with trends in policy, practice, and business. Each month, we start with covering the latest in cutting-edge research, popular media, and in the policy sphere, and then we pop to our guest portion where you get to hear straight from an expert about the incredible work that they're doing in developmental science. Caitlin, why don't you take it away for our updates? In honor of our guest today, Dr. Perry, we have three fun facts for you about social connection. So these are from an article that Rose wrote in her Social Connection 101 series for Social Creatures, which is an amazing nonprofit that she started that we're going to learn all about today. But first off, what is social connection? It's a state of feeling close to another person. It's feeling cared about by others and also caring about them, as well as feeling a connection or a sense of belonging to a group or community. Social connection, simply put, is the opposite of loneliness. And an important part of this definition is that it's subjective. So it's based on someone's perception of connection. It's not about the size of their social network, but it's really specific to that person's needs. So it's created out of an individual person's unique social needs and the opportunity to regularly meet those needs through their social network. There are three types of social connection, intimate, relational, and collective. So intimate social connectedness is feeling close to a nurturing companion who affirms our value as an individual. This could be a spouse, a romantic partner, or anyone that we share a deep mutual bond of affection with. And we rely on these inner circle relationships for emotional and practical support. Studies show that we typically devote about 40% of our available social time to our top five most intimate social connections. Two is our relational social connectedness. This is the perceived presence of friendships or family connections who provide support and mutual aid. This is our middle circle. So this could include about 15 to 50 people. And these relationships are a little bit more casual than those with our innermost circle but they still are important because they provide us with a sense of closeness that we can be relied on and they can rely on us for support. And studies show that connecting with close friends or relatives about every two weeks predicts higher levels of relational social connectedness. So yeah, if you know, if you're listening to this and it's been about two weeks since you called your mom, call your mom. It predicts higher <laughs> levels of social connectedness or any close friend or, or connection. And the third type of social connectedness is collective social connection. This is the sense of having meaningful connections with a group. So it could be a team, a volunteer group, a school, or an organization. And interacting with a network or a community of people around a common interest or a shared goal or purpose is really important to, for our collective identity. This could be through occasional interactions with coworkers, with neighbors, or online. And collective social connection makes us feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves. Research shows that the more groups that we voluntarily belong to, the more likely we are to report high levels of collective social connection. And this is our outermost circle, which has anywhere from about 150 up to 1,500 people. And because poetry can tell us sometimes what science cannot, let me leave you with a quote about social connection from Marina Keegan in her famous essay, The Opposite of Loneliness. 
It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together. And with that, Haley, why don't you take it away for our policy updates so we can learn about our collective social connections to to (laughs) politics and society. Oh, the most fun connections, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Nowhere near as beautiful as poetry, but it has been a fascinating month. For anyone remotely plugged into the news, you'll have known that we just went through yet another midterm election season. Dun, dun, dun. Now, usually the party that controls Congress and potentially the White House as well doesn't really do super hot during the midterms. Voter turnout is typically lower, and most people tend to think of it as a referendum on the party in power and a bit less about policy per se. But this year was a little bit different. Uh, There was pretty significant voter turnout relative to previous years, especially among young voters. Shout out to Gen Z. Thank you very Mm much. Yep. And in an atypical political upset, the Democrats actually retained their majority in the Senate, kept margins pretty slim in the House, although I will note that they no longer have the majority. It now goes to the Republicans. And they scored several state leadership positions around the country, including the governorships of Arizona, Michigan, and Maryland. There's still an outstanding Senate race, which has now gone to a runoff between candidates Reverend Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker in Georgia, which is set to take place in early December. And in fact, early voting has already commenced. The outcome of that election is not going to do anything to change the majority party in the Senate. Um, Democrats already have that since the vice president, Kamala Harris, is a Democratic tiebreaker. But it would give Democrats a slightly larger margin if Warnock won, and it would set a definite tone for the Republicans if Walker won. I will just leave that at that. As we enter what's called the lame duck session, where there are new congresspeople elect awaiting to take their positions in the new year, and folks that are currently in office are phasing out the rest of their 2022 agendas, a few key items are going to be topping the list of to-dos. First and foremost, they have to fund the government. That's a thing that they have to (laughs) vote about. (laughs) There's currently a continuing resolution in place through December 16th, which is just, it just means that the government is operating at last year's spending levels rather than setting new ones for the 2023 fiscal year or for whatever period that's uh, dedicated for. It's not clear yet whether Congress is going to set up another short-term CR or continuing resolution just to sort of see them through and give a little bit more time for negotiations. If they do that, it would just punt the ball potentially a few weeks, maybe into the new year. But if they do elect to see negotiations through and actually pass a larger spending bill, that would be for the following fiscal year for FY 2023. So stay tuned about that. That obviously sets the stage for everything that the government does, (laughs) the amount of money that it has to allocate for the different programs that it's responsible for, the different policies that it needs to see actualized, the money that it can offer to states for support. So this is a big deal. It sort of seems like the nitty gritty behind the scenes stuff. But when we say Congress holds the purse strings, literally, this is what this means. I will also flag relatedly that lawmakers have to reauthorize the annual National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, which is a yearly must-pass bill that sets the U.S. military policy for the following year. So folding that in, that is also something that Congress is going to be focusing on over the next few weeks. 
They will also likely be working to codify some core essentials, including the right to same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So this issue has been spurred by the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, which had, up until recently, for 50 years protected the right to abortion under the Constitution. So now folks around the country have gotten progressively more concerned about other basic rights that they could see being rolled back should the largely conservative courts decide to do so. Does that act also include interracial marriage as well? It does. Yeah. Yeah, it is the Respect for Marriage Act, which Congress has now taken up and the Senate's expected to move forward at some point the week of November 28th for a vote. So yeah, that would codify same-sex and interracial marriages through federal protections. Uh, And that would just mean that marriages that are same-sex or interracial need to be recognized across all states. Gotcha. Um, So yeah, definitely a big deal. And people are rightfully concerned. And I think that goes across a whole swath of different issues, right? Like there are policies that need to be enacted to support families. There are laws that congressional leaders need to work to codify to protect existing marriages. And there are also protections for democracy as we know it that need to be enacted. So changes to the Electoral Count Act, which is a proposal that's been spurred by the January 6th attack on the Capitol, would essentially set the stage to prevent that from happening again by clarifying the role of the vice president in presiding over the certification of electoral votes as purely ceremonial, which means he cannot arbitrarily, unilaterally throw them out or overturn votes that have been submitted by constituencies across various states. So if that bill passes, it would be the most substantive legislative response to the events of January 6th. Mm -hmm. At the moment, dear listeners, there doesn't appear to be a big package on deck for children and families. But rest assured, advocates are continuing the fight to expand childcare subsidies to low-income families who are struggling the most to afford childcare, and to bring back other important supports for families, particularly low-income families, including expansions to the child tax credit that actually helped both low- and middle-income families make ends meet and avoid the perils of financial precarity in the latter half of 2021. We actually talked about that particular tool in our May episode with Dr. Jill Gandhi, so if you want to refresh yourself, head back and check that out. And in honor of this month's episode, I also want to flag a big win, and that is the Mental Health Matters bill has passed the House. So this bill would actually require an increase in access to mental and behavioral health care services and would create several grant options to increase the number of school-based mental health service providers. It would establish new requirements for higher education institutions to support students with disabilities, prohibit employer discrimination in the provision of different kinds of work-related benefits based on mental health, and it would establish a new occupational research program on mental health. There's also some language in the bill text about identifying effective interventions in Head Start and early Head Start programs focusing on supporting children's mental health and preventing a slew of negative outcomes later in life, like mental health issues that persist or substance abuse issues. So this is definitely a sign that advocates on the legislative side of things are continuing the fight to provide support 
And I think that this sort of aligns pretty well with this with this particular episode in talking about social connection and how valuable that is for our health and well-being. So I think with that, let's bring in our guest. So today we are interviewing Dr. Rose Perry, a social neuroscientist and founder of an amazing nonprofit social innovation and research firm called Social Creatures. Dr. Perry received her PhD from New York University in neuroscience and physiology, and after several years working in lab settings, she really wanted to expand our understanding of the power of social relationships in an entrepreneurial and a translational setting. So Social Creatures creates a space that's informed by neuroscience, psychology, and population health research, and driven by community-level insights to promote social interactions that strengthen well-being. Rose and I met while at NYU, where I took her course in social and emotional development. And in her free time, Dr. Perry loves spending quality time with friends and family, baking, reading, and tending to her amazingly green indoor garden. So welcome, Rose. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. So Rose, I think what we would love to start with is just sort of building some general knowledge. Can you tell us a little bit first about what a social neuroscientist is? So as opposed to general neuroscience, what is the social aspect of your research? Tell us about the brain and how relationships shape it. Yeah, absolutely. So most neuroscientists study the brain by itself as an isolated entity and really just try to understand how the brain works which obviously we have a long way to go with that. And this is something that I myself am super passionate about. But a brain is, as we know, lives inside a human body and humans and many animals are highly social species. So we need to interact with others. And in many ways, we rely on others for survival. Uh, So with this in mind, a social neuroscientist studies the brain in its real world context to investigate how social experiences such as our interpersonal relationships, how feelings of loneliness or social isolation, and even things like social network size influence how our brain is working, how it processes the world, and how these experiences on the flip side, how they shape our brain and our biological system. So the main difference between traditional neuroscience and social neuroscience is just really understanding how the brain develops and works within these social settings specifically. My work has always in some way also focused on early life and brains, as many of the people listening to this podcast, I'm sure are aware of, are particularly malleable and shaped by environmental influences in early life, especially between caregiver relationships with the infant. So this is also like a branch of social neuroscience. And you'll hear me talk about this a bit more probably in this interview because much of my research is focused on that. Yeah, and Rose, on the topic of your research, I know a lot of your research really focuses on maternal-child relationships, including in rats as well as humans. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research and kind of the evolution of it? Yeah, so my research journey started way back in undergrad at University of Delaware. Uh, The very first lab that I ever worked in was a social psychology lab, which is kind of interesting because I feel like when you look back at your research career after so many years, you know, obviously when I was an undergrad, I didn't have a big plan. I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now, but you can see how the dots connected even kind of unintentionally over the years. So I think it's funny that the very first lab I worked in was a social psychology lab. And that lab was studying couples coping with cancer. So it was very much like dyadic research, uh, looking at how 
interpersonal support influenced psychological well-being and health-related outcomes. That same year, I also joined another lab, which was a very traditional neuroscience lab studying rodent models, specifically rodent learning and early life. It was, it was very much how I got introduced into the infant development space. And so as early as undergrad, I was working on, on one side in human work and on the other side in rodent work. And I, that really sparked a passion for translation, translational science for me early on in my career. And then I wanted to merge that much more intentionally for my PhD research. So when I, I moved on to New York University to do my PhD with Dr. Regina Sullivan, I began looking at social neuroscience more explicitly and studying maternal child relationships predominantly in rodents, but I also did a little bit of, of human work as a PhD student as well. And really just over that period of my career was focused on early life stress and how early life stress can get under the skin, so to speak, to influence how an infant's brain and physiology develops and the, the long run effects it can have over time if it's not addressed um, well into adulthood. Yeah. And then after that, I I had a, a, enough of rats for a while. <laughs> I was really more into the human side of things. I then started a, a postdoctoral fellow at New York University uh, in the Department of Applied Research with doctors Clancy Blair and Sibel Raver. And they allowed me to really go wild with my translational work and really try to bridge what the animal researchers at NYU were doing with the human researchers at NYU and still stay in the same space of looking at maternal infant relations and social factors in general and how they influence development longitudinally. But I, I was able to publish a number of cross-species publications where we did studies that very intentionally compared human data to rodent data and like we conducted those studies concurrently. So all of that was really fun. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, but it also came with me feeling like I kind of hit the end of the translational wall that, that like as far as I could go in the traditional academic system with translation yeah, yeah. because I had gone from working with like brain slices <laughs> under microscopes with rats to like humans and applied real world settings. And I just still felt a little bit of frustration over the discovery that we were making, not translating to impact necessarily. So we were mm -hmm. able to begin to translate across fields within the academic set setting, but it was much harder to, to see where the research was going beyond that and specifically how it was benefiting the general population and taxpayers who were funding the majority of the research. You know, I, was, I was NIH funded and NSF funded over my career and I just felt like I wanted to figure out another way to do things as a next step. And that's what led me to social creatures. So I wanted to stay in the same subject matter of social neuroscience, but figure out how can we flip the research model on its head a little bit and start with communities and start with people with lived experiences around things like social isolation and loneliness and, and real world social situations and, and craft our research questions and with that in mind, it also crafted in mind with solutions, so like very solutions oriented research. Yeah, I think it's just 
amazing how you've been involved in so many different stages of research. Like there's the rat research, which, you know, is in a lab, you know, not with human participants. And then you have also human infants all the way to translation. So do you have any like nuggets or any stories for us about rat and human parallels? I'm just thinking through for listeners who are who are listening and who are like rat research, what does that have to do with babies? Like, what are some of those parallels? <laughs> Yeah, great question. I was always humbled as a human about how similar we are to rats. I mean, there are a lot of ways that we're different too, but we're both altricial species. So we rely on on adults to survive in infancy. So that was one major thing that allowed us to study across species is like looking specifically at the importance of those early life relationships with an adult caregiver, both humans and and rodents rely on that to survive. So how do infants go about bids for connection for that? And how do mother or caregiver rodents and caregiver humans reply to those bids? Rats and humans are more similar than you think they are. (laughs) You were sort of, I think, getting at this when you were talking about the level of depth that animal researchers can go when, when we want to understand some of the causal mechanisms for these outcomes of interest that obviously you can't do with infants, right? Like you can't experimentally mess with the attachment that an infant has with their caregiver. So what what do those human studies actually look like? How do you get at some of the human analogs to the questions of interest that you could do maybe more intentionally with the rodent research? Yeah, great question. So yeah, as I was saying before, a major benefit of animal research is that you can go deep and look at cause and effect mechanism in the brain specifically, whereas with human research, that's not as easy to do. And of course, it would not be ethical. We would never want to do that. There's lots of statistical things that you can do in human research. Causal inference with data is super helpful at getting at this. Also looking at perspective longitudinal research, I think helps quite a bit rather than trying to piece together things retrospectively. So a lot of my human research was looking at long longitudinal studies and looking at how things unfold over time and then leveraging statistical modeling to understand if there's perhaps cause effect things going on. But at the end of the day, you can't like that is a major limitation of human research. Um, You can also do randomized controlled trial experiments to look at if you can randomly assign into different scenarios. When it comes to things like early life stress, of course, we would never create conditions of of stress. So it really just depends on what the research question is. But I think with development, child development and social neuroscience questions, it can be particularly hard to design these random assignment studies. You kind of have to look at it from an intervention perspective where you're offering up solutions rather than trying to create the conditions that are contributing perhaps to the problem in a way to test out if that's actually what's what's going on. Um, But this is like this exact point of how it's really hard to do this in humans is why I think human researchers need to work more with animal researchers and vice versa, because animal researchers are really well positioned at creating experiments and controlling and um, having that internal control that you can't get with human research. But animal researchers also tend to be more divorced from what is the most relevant thing to be studying from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. And I say that as an animal researcher myself, how the field tends to go. Um, so I think the more that we can be reading across species papers, getting to know one another in interdisciplinary fields and creating teams that are centered around a shared problem that you're studying instead of centered around a shared species or a technique. So you've already given us a little bit about what inspired social creatures, but I wondered if you could sort of walk us through 
what the experience was like from conceiving the idea to really growing it to the size that it is today. The conception of the idea really was very gradual, and it was born out of discussions with colleagues over my time in laboratories. I'd say probably by my third out of four years as a postdoc, I knew that the traditional academic career trajectory wasn't the right one for me. Like I, I knew that I wasn't going to go on the job market in a traditional sense. It just didn't feel right for me. And I wanted to figure out how to test a novel system of how to do research outside of the traditional academic system. And then, so I got that far and then the pandemic hit. And I was like, this is the time. Like if I'm ever going to do it, it's now. So it, we brought it to light. I say me and my colleagues who started it, it's not just me who started Social Creatures. We started it faster than we originally planned to because we, we always knew it was going to focus on social neuroscience, every all the topics that we are experts in. And that's simply why. Like we wanted to make sure we were testing a model within our own domain. With the pandemic, everything to do with social relationships became at the forefront of everyone's mind, became really important. We saw a lot of the populations that we were working with in our own research, a lot were from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds being completely disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and some of the policies around the pandemic and also just like disproportionate disconnection, like our lives immediately went online in a way like never before. And many people didn't have computers or internet. So we just felt compelled to try to do something sooner rather than later. So that, that's the honest answer is to how social creatures came to light uh, very quickly in April 2020. And ever since then, we've just been kind of protocolizing everything that we've learned from the past two and a half years of just jumping in head first to try to, to create an organization like this. And just to give a little bit of an intro of what we, we do, um, our mission is to build healthier communities through social connections. And this is based on all the research that we've been talking about so far, even today, that social connections can get under our skin to influence our health and development on a profound and physiological level. Some of the statistics on that are really stark, like social isolation and loneliness are associated with a 32% increased risk of stroke. If you have weak social relationships, you're 50% more likely to die prematurely than people with stronger social relationships. They're not new statistics. Like these things have been around for a while and just solutions being created around that are what I think is slower moving. And it just felt like a good example of, you know, it, it matched with our frustration of look at all this discovery and then, and then what in terms of impact and translation. So we're really trying to take what we know, not just those sad statistics, but also about how wonderful social connection is and how much resilience it, it can impart for health and the importance mm -hmm. of social health, like how you can leverage it for health. And we work directly with communities to build social connectedness programs that are really value-based and that from the very beginning are being informed by the populations that the research and the programs are intended to serve, which was another major frustration that, that myself and my colleagues had working in academia was that there was a major division between the people doing the research, setting the tone, saying what the problem is that we're studying, saying what the solution for that problem should be, there was a very stark disconnect between people with PhDs and taxpayers who were directly impacted by those problems. So we're also trying to bridge that gap as well. 
Totally. And I, I feel like as not a social neuroscientist, I have a f- decent, naive understanding of maybe the negative impacts of social isolation on our health and well-being. Like that, you know, there's an increased risk in cardiovascular disease and stroke, an increased risk of stroke. But I don't have a clear understanding of the positive mechanism between good social connections and good health outcomes. So do we have an understanding of what exactly is happening there? We, we do in some ways. The, there's many purported mechanisms and how it's good. I'll speak to one that my research has looked at specifically, but know that this is one example of many different mediating pathways that we have pretty good evidence around. And just as early life stress can be transmitted from one stressed adult to a stressed infant, and even just between adults and adults, especially in caregiver-infant relationships, the social figure, the caregiver, can block stress responses drastically. So this is an example of if a child, an infant, even an adult, it happens in adult relationships too, it's just more profound in early life. We're in this stressful pandemic, right? We're all feeling, especially in April 2020, we were feeling really stressed out. One of our the major things that can help reduce physiological cortisol is hanging out with loved ones, especially with a partner or with your parent if you're a child. And there's amazing research on this that shows how it turns off or buffers, lowers the stress response. It can also alter how you process pain in the brain. So you can see how these social relationships modulate our brain activity as well to protect us against some of the harsh stressors in our environment. It's just, it really is, it's like this switch effect in infancy and then it's, it's, it's a little bit softer as adults, but it's still significant how we can either be contributing to one's stress or in a really high quality, meaningful relationship, you can be protecting your loved ones from physiological stress in a powerful way. So I think just even knowing that and understanding that helps motivate the need programs that treat social health. Like I, I, I think of it, and, and not just me, the people in this field in general, we think of it as a third dimension of health. So you have your physical health, you have your mental or emotional health, and then you have your social health. Often overlooked or at least undervalued from a health perspective. So like we're really trying to change that narrative and we're trying to, you know, with our social connection programs and our social health programs, we're trying to embed them in healthcare delivery models specifically. Like it should be part of how we approach healthcare from infancy into adulthood. It should be reimbursed by health insurers because the evidence is so clear. We're trying to also generate more evidence to, to help support that case. <laughs> and social prescription, that's another thing for people who are curious. You can read about social prescribing. It also goes along with how we know having social connection is so beneficial for cognitive health, physical health, mental health. Like it intersects with all the other types of health to the point where it can be almost used as medicine if, if it's done correctly. Totally. Yeah. This is something that Caitlin and I have talked about before in the context of our postdocs, that there is such a thing as a prescription of play. And I wonder if it's because in a large part, it's tapping into this mechanism that you're describing, that just healthy, meaningful, good connectedness with the people around us helps to facilitate all kinds of different positive health benefits and mitigate some of the negative ones. And play is just a really organic arena for that to play out. Absolutely. I mean, play is something that we look at a lot 
in our organization just be because of exactly that, especially in early life. It's like one of the most powerful ways to tap into the positive impacts of social interactions with a, with an adult. Yeah, and this is a quick plug for an article that I wrote for the Social Creatures Time with with Rose. That was all about the importance of social connection and play in infancy. Because yeah, that I think that's such a great parallel between between our work. It is. I was I was going to mention that we, this is like a <laughs> major reason that Caitlin and I have stayed in touch over all these years. Yeah. Is because when we when we launched the organization, she's like, "Hey, this is so related to play," and I was like, "You're absolutely right. We should do something about it." So definitely go read our article on our website. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. So Rose, and in hearing you talk about how you founded Social Creatures, it really strikes me just all of the different types, all the different areas that you have your foot in the door in, right? Because it's social and and scientific entrepreneurship on the one hand, it's, you know, community building. As you were describing your work with communities, it reminded me of like community-based participatory research. And I'm really just curious because you, you know, you had this vision and you created this and which I so admire because, you know, you were like, you know, traditional, this track is not for me. So I'm just going to create, right, my vision. So I'm curious what kind of vision you have about how scientists in general can translate our work, how we can kind of move forward as a field in doing exactly what, what you say, which is getting this work that we're doing into the hands of communities and out there and, and not just bringing it to communities, but actually creating it with communities from the beginning where they're actually getting to lead. Yeah, great question. I definitely think the community co-design piece, the community-based participatory research piece, I really hope is the future of translational research in general. Yeah, so I'm optimistic about it because even in the past year, I've had more students in training reach out about that to me and like I just hear it more. So I, I can see it's happening already, which is great. So I think that's one major thing. Learn how to do community-based participatory research. I didn't learn it in a traditional way, but I'm working with colleagues to learn it. I also think one thing that's really important for doing good translational science is to understand the problem space. And I don't think that we always get good training on that in the traditional academic system. We learn about the problem within our specific field, right? Like how does a, what does neuroscience say about this problem? What does psychology say about this problem? I think it's really important to like zoom out a million feet, <laughs> look a bird's eye view at who are the key players in general working on this problem. And it's typically researchers, right? If you're a researcher listening to this and you're thinking about it, then absolutely you have at least that level of familiarity. But also, who are the advocates in the space on a government level, local all the way up to federal, but also like grassroots, community-based organizations, community members, community-led, who has skin in the game when it comes to solving this problem? This can also be for reasons that aren't necessarily the reasons that you're trying to solve the problem, but it's important to understand it. So like for us, a lot of times understanding the healthcare space, specifically like insurance space, they might be in it to make money, whereas we're in it because we want to solve the problem. That's not sometimes the two and even in the insurance world go hand in hand. Sometimes they don't. But I think it's really important to really try to learn the landscape of the problem and the key players. You don't have to become an expert on it, on it by any means, but just even orienting yourself, like taking a little bit of time to orient yourself to who's working on the same thing that you are and what's the framework within their fields 
will help you understand from the beginning what you need to be researching. Yeah, because I feel like in the academic space, we have a particular set of tools that we're kind of trained in, right? Like these are the methods, these are the measures. And I think, like you said, thinking of it more broadly as a problem space and thinking about who else is invested in this and what tools do they have and how could we actually bring our tools together to make a greater impact on that that area or that topic is really important. I'm not going to say that I knew how to do this when I started Social Creatures, but this is what we've learned is is a very meaningful approach in our past almost three years of existence. And it's definitely something that we've operationalized within our organization and like a framework that we're, we're operating within now. And it just is helping us to create solutions with community input from the beginning, but also taking into account what is it going to take to scale or to take the solution to the next step? So I think I think it's important for the translation to actually have uptake after you've created something. There are also important lessons to be learned among the academic community about maybe some of the attitudinal or ideological orientations that we bring to the table. Like we, I find, at least in my experience, we come to a problem very much so with like a savior mindset. Like I have a very clear perspective of what the problem is because this is something that's interested me and I've done a ton of research on it and, you know, a ton of reading and I'm part of this community of researchers that give me validation in thinking that I have a solid grasp on the nature of the problem space and all of the players in it. But we are so insulated. And I think to your point about this being a longstanding tradition in academia that is driving more and more people into translational work, that is a limitation, that we're not traditionally engaged with these communities, that we or are only in as much as we're including them as participants in our research, but not necessarily as actors in the thought process, the thought development process, and in, you know, continuing to the longevity or contributing to the longevity of that work in that they have some ownership over it and, you know, what the next steps look like and who benefits and, you know, what, what the vision should be from that point on. Yes, I totally agree. And I'm increasingly thinking about this issue from an ethical perspective. I hope that IRBs one day are considering these sorts of things. Yeah. Truly, like how ethical is it to be designing entire problem spaces and solving, like having that saviorism mindset that you just referenced when you're not involving the community that is most directly impacted by that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's, it's problematic when you think about it on that level. It's not balanced. I think we know it's not balanced. The field knows it's not balanced. Until we achieve anything closer to balance, we do kind of have to take the findings lightly as well. Yeah. And I think there's such this like tense history between like, you know, the academy and like the communities, right? And so I'm leading a project with early child care centers where we work with teachers and we do community-based participatory research. And it's always, you know, that initial uh, meeting where they're like, do you actually care what I feel like? Are you actually listening? And it takes so much time and so much you know, of that community building to be like, I, we really care. Like, actually, you're the most important part. Actually, like, what's most important to me, my criteria of success is, is this something that you feel that your community needed, that you were able to create? And could I give you the tools to help create that vision, right? So I think the Academy has a long history to kind of like build back that trust and to kind of, I guess, rebrand what research is, right? And who owns it and who is it for and who creates it? Absolutely. I think trust is the most important thing. And for good reason, 
the academy is not trusted by a lot of population. So <laughs> we need to face that issue head on and diversify first off. Yeah. Um, restructure quite a bit. Absolutely. So this question doesn't necessarily need to be specific to folks in academia, but in general, what are some of the top myths or misconceptions that you've encountered in the course of your work? Mm, this is a good question. There's been a couple dominant ones when it comes to just the topic of the science of social connection in general. One that people are often surprised to learn is that you can be surrounded by people but still feel lonely. Just understanding what loneliness really is and really means and vice versa. You can be like relatively social isolated, but feel like you have social connections. So like everyone has a set point, right? Like it's not, it's not like there's a blanket prescription for everyone in terms of what you need to benefit from social connection and just understanding the distinction between loneliness and actual surroundings of people, right? Uh, so that's that's one thing that I think it's important to, to clarify uh, with research and how we go about the science of studying this. And how do you define loneliness? It's a perceived thing. It's the perception of, of being alone. So it's not necessarily grounded in, it is grounded in reality, right? Because you're feeling it for a reason, but it's going to look different for everyone. It's, it's some people are going to be okay with only seeing one person a day most days, whereas other people need six hours of social connection every day to feel good. And I think it's important that we consider not just talking, like not just measuring what's actually happening in the real world, what people are also like perceiving as adequate or insufficient um, to, to truly move the needle on health. We also, we work quite a bit with, because of our community work, we work a lot with communities and community-based organizations. And one thing that we often hear when we're starting out our relationships is, oh, we're not really working on social connection. Like our organization doesn't really target social connections. Like, why do you want to work with us? But, but it's because they are. <laughs> They're just not realizing that they are. Because I think a lot of times people think about social connection. They think about like the intimate relationships, so like best friends, partners, and there's multiple levels to social connection. And that is really important. Like having close friends and um, a partner is definitely beneficial to your social connection, but you can also get social connection from your friends and from community, just from like random discussions with your grocery store clerk, like things like that. And a lot of times the community-based organizations are serving just that need. They are, are that community touch point for their program participants. So mm -hmm. I think understanding that social connection has multiple levels and that all of those levels are really beneficial to our health can just help in many ways. But I, I've, I've seen that it's helped empower organizations that have kind of been undervaluing themselves and their contribution to social factors of health because they just, it's not baked into their mission, but it's, they're still doing it just by the nature of how they've set up their organizations. That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to talk about the stigma because I feel like maybe let's unpack that a little bit. Like, I feel like there is such a stigma around like loneliness and like saying that you feel lonely. Where does that come from and how do we unpack it? And why do we have to kind of sneak in the social connection into, you know, the exercise program or the other program for people to like recognize that that's important? 
Yeah, I mean, these are million-dollar questions, Caitlin. <laughs> I, I personally don't know exactly where the stigma comes from. I just know that it is real. I feel like it's similar to just the stigma with mental health in general. And I think that as much as we can shift the narrative towards mental health and social health being just as important, like it is your physical health, right? Like it's part of your physical health. It's things that we need to take care of. You're you're not weak for wanting to, to look after your health, right? Can help address it. But I'm sure someone who's more in the evolutionary psychology side of things could give a better answer than I could about where the, the stigma itself comes from. But I can tell you it's very real from, from my work. For sure. There's got to be something packed in there about like, you know, people as like social creatures. Well, so, oh my God, I just figured out your whole tagline. Why do you fix that? <laughs> Caitlin, we are social creatures. <laughs> no, but like we are, you know, like living in like, I guess packs isn't the right word, but we live in groups. We live in really complex groups. Like it's part of who we are. It's part of how we're wired. So there must be, yeah, there must be some deeper reasons. And I'm just thinking more and more like how do we destigmatize it? I feel like especially when COVID first hit, there was a lot of work that I saw around guess what? Everybody's socially isolated. So if you're not mm-hmm. admitting it now, you're lying, right? Because we physically are socially isolated. So, you know, I'm hopeful that a lot of kind of those new messages around that kind of destigmatizing loneliness and social isolation will continue in the future. I agree. And I think one thing about loneliness that's important to highlight is that it's universal. I don't think anyone has ever not felt lonely at some point. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a human, in many ways, it's like part of the human experience to experience loneliness at some point. So I think if we can, in some ways, we can help normalize it just by that fact that it's like a universal experience that everyone faces at some point. And you don't need to stay there. There's things you can do to get unstuck with your loneliness. Yeah. And it, it's not all like on the individual's responsibility either. Like we need to make sure that we're creating equitable environments to, to be able to benefit from social connections. And a lot of our work is on that as well. Like just even as simple as the green spaces in your neighborhood and community centers in your neighborhood and all of these things boil down to resources and and differences in resource levels and investments in different communities. So it's not just an individual level problem. It's It's like a system level problem. And I think we're also pushing for that narrative to take shape a little bit more so that when you think loneliness and social isolation, it's not always just, oh, what's wrong with that person? Or it's more like, what, what's happened to them? And even more like, what circumstances are they in? Not even like what's happened to them, right? Like taking it up those levels. So Rose, as we've been talking about the connection between science and advocacy, I know that there's this misconception out there that science is unbiased and therefore, you know, is not compatible with advocacy but I know that social creatures bridges science and tech and advocacy. And can you unpack that for us? Yeah. I mean, I find it interesting that people even have that misconception. I mean, I, I guess I get it. That science and advocacy are, are not compatible, but the thing is science is not unbiased. It's never going to be unbiased. That's the unfortunate part. I mean, we try really hard to have control, but any time that a human is involved, until we've like, and even, even when, yeah, like we can't divorce humans from science. So there's always going to be bias. Right. And I think there's a lot of bias in science with how the system is set up right now, as we've talked about Mm -hmm. quite a bit, but I think science at least introduces some structure. It's working towards 
understanding truth through controlling factors. And if you're not basing advocacy on that, then what are you wanting to base advocacy on? Please don't think that science is unbiased, but understand that we're working really hard to, to be as unbiased as possible. Mm -hmm. And what is the better alternative to like how to go about this for advocacy purposes? I think that, that the major missing piece is that science needs to work with community. And that's like a huge link between science and advocacy is, is involving community members and, and the stakeholders that are the most impacted by the problem in the space in general that you're working in. So yeah, like really being critical about who is creating the research questions, who's designing the studies, who's interpreting the results, who's funding the research, all of those things. Um, so I think that's mainly right now how we're trying to bridge science and advocacy is creating that link between community, but also similar to what we discussed earlier, understanding the problem space on a broad level so that as we're creating social connection programs, like from the very beginning, we're thinking about if this is successful, what we're building, where, how are we going to take it to the next level? And what needs to occur in terms of policy changes, what needs to occur in terms of insurance changes in the line of work that, that we work in. Um, one of the programs that we're building right now is a social support program for first time parents. So basically when you give birth, you're assigned to a group of, of other parents who've given birth within the same four to eight week window as you and who live nearby. And they come together to meet with the social worker and there's some education involved, like they can have questions answered around child development, mental health, physical health, maternal and paternal health in general. But the major goal is for them to know their neighbors that are going through a similar postpartum experience and for relationships to form that are going to span beyond the length of the program itself to continue to have ongoing benefits that come from having a social network. <laughs> Yeah. So with that, we're really trying to, from the very beginning, like we're just beginning the pilot of that. We are very much trying to have this program embedded in traditional postpartum healthcare and for it to be reimbursed by Medicaid and major insurers. So we are already working on what is it going to take from a policy level perspective and an advocacy perspective to get there. And, you know, this is the pilot might not work. This program might not go anywhere a year from now. But I think it's important from the very beginning to kind of plot out how are we going to take this so that it can scale and it can it can go places beyond the walls of where the experiments are taking place and where the piloting is taking place. And who are all the key players that we need to be aware of and the systems that we need to be aware of so that we can make it happen after the pilot, right? So that's kind of how we think about advocacy is just like high level understanding the problem space, making sure that our team consists of people working across fields within that problem space or that we are at least talking with people and forming relationships with people across the problem space so that we understand what the pain points are gonna to be to scale and to have broad impact and solve from that from the beginning because it's much harder to create a solution go through all of that and then a the community might not use it if you didn't design it with the community to begin with and then it's not going to go anywhere and then 
if you design it with the community and you've not taken in consideration all of the red tape <laughs> coming for you at the next step, you're going to get stuck too. And, you know, we're still young. It's not like we scaled anything massively, massively far, but I really feel that it's important to think about these things from the beginning as much as possible to maximize your chances of success. Totally. That sounds like an amazing program. <laughs> and do you Thank have you. any other programs that you're currently working on that you wanted to highlight or, or share a little bit about? Sure. Yeah, there's one other one right now that we are going strong on still. It's called Sit Grit Fitness. It's a fully seated exercise program. It was created by individuals with spinal cord injury at the we launched this in May 2020. So this was our very first program. I'm really proud of how quickly we stood it up, being that we founded in April and we had our first class in May. And it was because of the community co-design that we were able to do it so quickly. And we've been doing community-based participatory research on it in general and shown that social connection has been through the roof of people who participate not every week, but at least regularly in the class, like as long as they go once a month to the class. And also just other health benefits have come from the program. And it's, it's all done virtually, but it's a great example of a program that is was just sneakily designed for social connection. <laughs> but if you went on our website and saw it, you'd be like, why is there an exercise program? <laughs> so I think right. that, like, if we were to be marketing it differently, the stigma piece definitely comes into play. We have regular community advisory board meetings as part of our community co-design where our, um, our community is saying, like, it has to be about exercise. We only care about the exercise. We don't care about the social connection part. And, like, they're very staunch on that. But then if you ask them what makes you come back every week, they say right. the community. And I'm like, yeah, the social connection must not be that important. But you're saying you come back because of your connection with the community and with the instructor specifically. They always highlight that. So that's one that I'm just – I'm just proud of is why I'm bringing it up because it's our very first program. Um, really proud of the impact that it's had in a short amount of time. And it's really helped us operationalize our approach moving forward to other programs in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just going to brag for Rose for a second, because I know she won't for herself, but her programs have been funded by every organization you can imagine, every foundation. Like how do you go about, <laughs> yeah. How do you go about making those connections with those partners? And like, how does each idea kind of get conceived? Yeah, good questions. Thank you. Um, we definitely haven't had every foundation. Or <laughs> no, not literally, but like. Yeah, if any program officers are listening. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, all of the ideas have come from community co-design to answer that aspect of your question. So we start everything with like a problem, problem identification. We have a problem identification yeah. process that we go through that involves focus groups, nationwide surveys. We specifically target populations and communities that are vulnerable to loneliness and are at the receiving end of inequities related to access to social connections. So we, we look at it at that system level like we talked about early. So for now, we've really focused on that, which has led us to, to work in the space of disability. Um, I myself have dwarfism. So like I also have that personal experience of knowing what social exclusion feels like with the disability. So yeah, all of that comes from 
just a problem identification process that we go through. And then once we feel pretty clear that there's like a problem that is in the general realm of social isolation and loneliness, we then do a second round of problem validation where we, we, we pose the questions in a different way where we're looking to see like, is if we ask people if this is a problem across this population, are many of them saying yes or not? Because if they're not, why would we invest our time and resources into it? Like if, I mean, I'm not saying that you, there are problems matter, no matter if it's affecting one person or many people, right? But for, as a startup, we needed to focus on problems that are affecting many people right. so that we could thrive as an organization. So I think that's a really good example of community-based participatory research and also community co-design that from even the conception of the problem, who is involved? Is it someone that is familiar with the problem? has the lived experience with it? Or is it someone who's read a bunch of papers that have been written by other people who don't have experience with the problem and it's been going on for years and years and it's just been perpetuated, right? So, so basically once we have the problem identified and validated is when we then go for fundraising. And I think that this approach has worked really well in the nonprofit, like being a nonprofit versus if I was a lab, running a lab, this would be really difficult because traditional research funding doesn't value community co-design as much as foundation research. It's great. The nonprofits world is, it's definitely on it more and more. So that's been beneficial and has validated me making the decision to leave academia to try to do this because I think it would have been way harder to do it in the academic system. So we've had good luck when we say, here's a problem that we identified with this community. Here's Here's everyone in that community, by the way. They're committed to solving this problem with us. They're part of our team. We're requesting money to work directly with them to build a solution out to this problem. And in doing so, to continue to collect novel, novel research in this problem space and in this intervention research that we do eventually intend to publish academically as well. Like We want to not just work in our little realm, but contribute to the broader knowledge of the field, which nonprofit worlds, it's like the opposite of academia in many ways, like community-based organizations have all these solutions. They're really good at working with the community. And I know you two work with community-based participatory research. So I'm sure you, you've experienced this all the time of like, there's these masters of solution. And then where is that information going, right? Like how do we create a bridge outside of the community-based organizations back into the academic world where we're bi-directionally learning from one another. So we're really trying to be that bi-directional bridge in many ways yeah. in the work that we're doing. Yeah, that's amazing. Just as some closing thoughts. Um, so Rose, what is next on the horizon for social creatures? Yeah, I mean, the next for us, we're really, like I said, we just launched our, our new parent program. So I think next year we're going to be focusing a lot on trying to grow that and get that up and running in a sustainable way. So hopefully I can come back in a year's time and, and report on that. But um, that's really what we're focusing on for the next year. And with that, we're really trying to build out a little bit more of the advocacy work in terms of working directly with insurance companies more um, direct, like more directly talking to insurers and, and, figuring out what we need to do 
to not just have this program succeed, but to transform what postpartum health looks like in America. Because right now when you give birth, you you have a six week follow up appointment and that's it. And that's just ridiculous. And that's the only thing that's that's reimbursed by the insurer Medicaid right now. Um, and luckily there's been some momentum being built behind this in general, like several states have changed their Medicaid policy so that postpartum is considered by insurers for the first 12 months after birth. And it used to be like nothing, like <laughs> I can think pretty much only up to those six weeks. So yeah, we're trying to figure out how we can through this work, not just have this program that helps parents bond with one another, but transforming the healthcare system and, and really purposefully integrating social health care in healthcare, like treating social health as a dimension of health. And you're, you're obviously focused at the community level and at the systems level, but we do love to ask of all of our guests, what do you think is the best part of being a kid in 2022? I have two answers. The first one is I think having like FaceTime and video-based conferencing, I grew up with family members all over. So I would have loved to been able to FaceTime my grandparents and my cousins. And I was really grateful that, that we all had that during the pandemic. Um, so I think, I think that's great. The second part to my answer is kids these days have the best clothes. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> the best clothes. And I, like I mentioned earlier, I have dwarfism. So like a lot of my clothes are kids clothes. Like I can't, I can only fit in kids clothes. And in high school, that made my life really difficult. <laughs> so like I went to gym class and light up sneakers in high school. Like the places were not good. And now you can get like, designer kids clothes for really cheap <laughs> like so anyway I just I would have loved being a kid now because it would have made my um my fashion choices much more easy in high school so thank you so much Rose for all the wonderful conversations for all the advice and tips and for just taking us through your journey of social creatures and it's amazing to watch it grow and we're just like so grateful to be part of the village supporting the mission yeah, thank, thank you. you. And thank you for having me. I look forward to continuing to follow your podcast. I love what you're both doing and happy to be a part of it as well. <laughs>